Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look, and I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, next fall semester at the University of Georgia, students of any major... Well, they can sign up to obtain a new certificate in news literacy. What's that, you say? Well, it's a program to help students identify misinformation as well as understand First Amendment rights and even the role of a free press. Also, coming up in just a moment, we'll talk about those cityhood movements that are already headed to the ballot for Cobb County. East Cobb, Vinings, Mapleton, and Lost Mountain, well, they all could be new cities. So here's a question. What's the impact on Metro Atlanta's political landscape if voters approve all these cities? All those conversations are coming up. But first this, fentanyl. There's been a spike in overdoses linked to fentanyl mixed with other street drugs. This is according to state health officials. Fentanyl can be deadly even in small doses, and it's difficult to detect when mixed with those other drugs. Throughout Georgia, at least 66 emergency departments reported seeing overdose cases between early February and mid-March involving fentanyl laced with cannabis products cocaine, methamphetamines, painkillers, and other drugs. And according to health officials, fentanyl-related overdose overdose deaths have risen dramatically during the pandemic. And we want to note anyone struggling with addiction, or if you know of anyone, contact the 24-hour Georgia crisis line. I'll give you this number twice. It's 800-715-4225. Again, 800-715-4225. In other news, today is the last day for Fulton County Election Director Richard Barron. He's been on this program many times. And the Fulton County Board of Registration and Elections is still looking for his replacement. Just two months away from the May primary, as Sam Greenglass tells us. The sole finalist for the job dropped out the day after he was announced. With no replacement on tap, an interim director, Nadine Williams, will take over for now. She's a longtime Fulton County elections staffer. At a recent special meeting, the board's vice chair, Kathleen Ruth, barely mentioned the setback. Derek Bowens has since withdrawn his candidacy for consideration. Therefore, the board will continue the search process. Bowens told the AJC he declined the job for personal reasons. Fulton County's current director resigned last year, but stayed on until now. Richard Barron drew criticism over the 2020 primary when some voters waited hours in line. He was also hounded by some Republicans, buoyed by former President Trump's false claims about election integrity in Fulton County. The election department is currently under audit by the state election board. That investigation is expected to end by the May 24th primary. Sam Greenglass, WABE News. There's some good news for food truck operators here in Georgia. Right now, they have to get a separate permit for every county they wish to roll through. But that would change based on a bill headed to Governor Brian Kemp. Once signed into law, food truck operators can use a health permit from the county they're based in while doing business in other counties. And this would save food truck operators thousands of dollars and allow them to operate, yes, in more counties. A bill that outlines a new process for banning books in schools is also headed to the governor's desk as we hear from Martha Dalton. Senate Bill 226 requires school boards to develop policies to review and remove books considered harmful to minors from school libraries. If Governor Brian Kemp signs the measure, school principals would have seven business days to review parents' complaints about books they consider obscene. Principals would have three more days to inform parents of their decision. 
Local school boards would have 30 calendar days to decide appeals. School districts would be required to post titles of removed books on their websites within 15 business days of a decision. The Senate gave final passage to the bill this week in a 29-21 to 21 vote along party lines. The Georgia Library Media Association, which is made up of school librarians across the state, opposes the measure. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And the programming note here, next week, uh, April 6th, Wednesday, we will have a special theme, Closer Look, talking about how we all talk about race, not only in our own families, but in terms of the classrooms, too. And our special guest will be Nicole Hannah Jones. And we should note the Georgia Senate today approved legislation that bans certain ways of talking about race in K-12 classrooms. More on that from our WABE newsroom a little bit later during All Things Considered. An Emory Holocaust historian and one of the nation's top experts on Holocaust denials and modern anti-Semitism has been confirmed as a U.S. ambassador. Dr. Deborah Litstadt will head the U.S. Special Envoy to combat anti-Semitism worldwide. Now, Georgia Democratic U.S. Senator John Ossoff, who himself is Jewish, gave supporting of Lipstadt's confirmation. And right now, as we speak, the scourge of anti-Semitism is rising again in this country and around the world. And Ossoff has pressed the FBI to put more resources into preventing, investigating, and prosecuting anti-Semitic hate crimes. And finally, I know you all are aware of WABE's new brand, Amplifying Atlanta, and of course we have a new logo and a new website. And now a new partnership with the Georgia Homing Pigeon Association. Now what's this all about? Well, WABE will use their pigeons to communicate with our reporters in the field. Now, Charles Edwards is the flight coordinator for the association. He told Closer Look how he became involved with the association during his time as a news director. It's really been an interest of mine for a while. I didn't grow up in a city. Um, I grew up sort of in a rural area. And any big city that I've ever seen or been, there were always pigeons. But I had no idea that my love for pigeons was going to actually help me one day. If a reporter was out in the field and I needed to get information to that reporter, I would write it down on a piece of paper and I would give it to the bird and then the bird would deliver that message to the reporter. Now, as to how the pigeons will deliver those messages, we wanted it to know, so Edwards walked us through the process. Yeah, that's something that I made for each of the 22 pigeons. It looks a lot like a little um, capsule holder. So, yeah, well, hold, hold on one second, I'm sorry. This just came in here. Okay. okay, this is for you. There's a tie-up on 400, so it's for your traffic report. And we should note, Closer Look will use the pigeons to contact guests you frequent, frequently hear, for example. Well, this is actually um, the bird that we use whenever we are trying to get a message to Paige Pate, who, as you know, is WAB's legal analyst. This is Nina Totenberg. And so whenever we want to do an interview with Paige, we actually don't call him because sometimes he's in court. Oh, that's what's up. Cool. So now we're amplifying Atlanta. That's pretty cool. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Cityhood, how many times have we said that this year? Well, cityhood movements for East Cobb, Vinings, Lost Mountain, and Mapleton have pretty much been given the green light by lawmakers this legislative session and are moving forward. Cobb County voters will be able to vote for or against the new city of East Cobb, Vinings, and Lost Mountain becoming cities. They'll do that in May. Mapleton still awaits Governor Kemp's signature and is expected to be on the November referendum. Now, the city of DeKalb, we know, formerly known as the city of Greenhaven, hasn't advanced, and there are talks about the creation of the city North Decatur. 
And I've always said I would love to be the city of Cheshire Bridge mayor. That's just me. To continue our conversation about the cityhood movement, but we want to focus a little bit on what this all means for Cobb County and some other questions. We turn to Kennesaw State University political science professor David Schock. Professor Schock has been researching the cityhood efforts in Cobb County, specifically their connection to the political realignment in Cobb and Georgia. Professor Schock, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on this program. Let's begin here for our listeners. This cityhood movement, we know it's been happening here in Georgia, and everyone always goes back to Sandy Springs being that first, that template. But are we seeing other states that have that have been having some of these cityhood movements, to your knowledge? Yeah, cityhood movements have occurred across the United States. They tend to happen more in certain states than in others. Um, the states where the cityhood movements um, occur most often tend to be fast growing states mm-hmm. and they're often states in the in the southern part of the United States and also uh, parts of the parts of the West. Um, Texas over the last 50 years has had quite a few cityhood movements as well as uh, the state of North Carolina and also Florida. Um, and, and what you what you tend to see, is those cityhood movements are uh, the the reason for those cityhood movements is is um, kind of a defensive incorporation mm-hmm. to try to stop the ability of nearby cities to annex the land, and and so you you, you do see particularly in fast growing metropolitan areas. Um, cityhood movement uh, spikes at different times mm-hmm. where for over, you know, maybe one or two years, you see a half dozen cities created. And then and then there's a lull, you know, mm-hmm. maybe a decade before a new city is created. And often it's an unincorporated area in a county. Is that pretty much the first when you had to, if you had to give a description of this, of the region? It's very rare that, like in the Buckhead case, it was a neighborhood wanting to carve away from an existing city that it was already in. Yeah, it's almost always an unincorporated area seeking to uh, become a new city. There were two uh, examples over the last 50 years, really over the last uh, 30 years. Um, There's a a borough in New York City called Staten Island. Mm -hmm. And for decades, Staten Island had tried to break away, but the New York legislature never gave final approval. And then there was also uh, an example of the, uh, there was a region in the city of Los Angeles called the San Fernando, Val- San Fernando Valley. And during the 1990s and early 2000s, there was an attempt to break away and form a, an independent city. And the, California, actually, the state government gave its okay, but they they made a stipulation that there had to be a vote not only in the area of the San Fernando Valley, but also in the whole city of Los Angeles. And both votes had to be approved by a majority. The vote in the San Fernando Valley was approved by a narrow majority, but this the citywide vote in Los Angeles uh, failed. Can you, I'm just, um, I'm curious, was it about more local control or just those those familiar zoning issues? What was sort of the, the, the reasoning? What was at the core of their reasoning? Yeah, it's mostly, it's mostly about zoning and land, con, land use control and, and it's, it's growth generally and trying to control local, you know, local growth initiatives. In, in San Fernando Valley, they wanted more, it wasn't that they wanted to stop growth, but rather mm-hmm. they wanted kind of growth that appealed to middle and upper middle class households, mm. you know, you know, rather than, you know, they don't want certain types <laughs> of businesses to move in, uh-huh. but they would like other types that, you know, kind of the higher end sort of businesses. So that was a, a part of the motivating factor in the San Fernando Valley. Uh, that's a whole nother segment. Let me get your opinion on this, because based on your research, so are you surprised that we saw this this sort of explosion of, of in Metro Atlanta, we can call it, in, in cityhood movements? Well, it starts off in 2005 with uh, with Sandy Springs. 
And there was a clear pent-up demand over decades for Sandy Springs Incorporation. And so when, when you had this pol political realignment in Georgia, where Republicans took control of the governor's office mm -hmm. and also the state legislature, that opened a political window for incorporation efforts to happen. And you saw cities around Sandy Springs begin to incorporate. Sandy Springs is what we call a pioneer city. Mm -hmm. It led the, it kind of led the way, it created the path for other cities to follow. And so once Sandy Springs was seen as a success, you, there, there, there was other movements that, click, that um, quickly sprung up uh, around Sandy Springs, including Dunwoody and DeKalb County, mm -hmm. Milton, um, and Johns Creek. Mm -hmm. And we should know, but those two, uh, the Johns Creek and Milton are very uh, affluent and, and I mean, the medium average house is pretty high. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The tax base is high. So one could argue also they could support some of the services that they wanted for their own cities based on the tax base. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, there are feasibility studies always done for new cities, and they always come back that the city is feasible. Yeah, that was uh, my and, next question. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, they have a, a strong tax base, and, and their proposals actually were to cut, try to cut back on, on spending. Uh, so, so the feasibility, you know, these cities are, are generally very feasible. I, I think the broader question is that's ignored is, what impact does the does the cityhood movements have on the what's left of the county? Well, well, okay. That's kind of the more concerning thing. So then you're telling me that the city of Cheshire Bridge is feasible. Well, it you know, it depends <laughs> on the number of services. Uh, you know, if you're only doing code enforcement, zoning, and parks and rec, yeah, it's probably feasible. I'm good to go. That well, it, because we talked about these feasibility studies on this program and how they tend to come back and always sort of favor. Oh yeah, you all should become a city, um, and the process to become a city in the state of Georgia is not that easy. But depending on you know, the region. Are you surprised that Cobb County, that these four cities, hood movements are that they kind of breeze through in a sense? Well, you know, it there was really no East Cobb and Mableton have for decades had an identity and, and Mableton was a city at one time mm -hmm. 100 years ago. But um, it wasn't until the 2016 election that you started to, to have people start to whisper about cityhood uh, when Hillary Clinton unexpectedly won Cobb County in 2016. That was really, for Cobb County, a, a big political moment. Nobody was expecting that. And some people thought that was a one-off mm -hmm. situation with Donald Trump, but we get to 2018 and Stacey Abrams wins Cobb County convincingly uh, as the Democratic nominee for governor. And in 2019, then you started to see serious movements, especially in East Cobb, to to begin to uh, formalize the cityhood movement. Lost Mountain was a surprise for a lot of people. Maybe if you don't, for those who don't, I don't live in Cobb County. I, I'm fair about saying that. So I wasn't even aware of Lost Mountain being a region. And I apologize to the folks of Lost Mountain. It's nothing personal. Uh, but these will these be big cities? Yeah, I mean, Lost Mountain, I believe, is about 75,000 people. Uh, That's a pretty sizable city. Yeah, I mean, they're all in the 50 to 100,000 category, uh, except for Vinings. Vinings are about 7,000. Uh, so so the East Cobb and Mableton and Vinings have a history. You know, there's a, we kind of know, you know, there's been a, a, we, t we referred to as East Cobb as a place, as Vinings as a place, mm -hmm. and Mableton as a place. Lost Mountain's a little bit different uh, is that it's so large. There doesn't seem, there's not an apparent center. And there's not really a, a decades-long history of people referring to themselves as being from that part of Cobb County, Lost Mountain. And so Lost Mountain's kind of a little bit different, and it's it's so large, it, it comes up right against the cities of Kennesaw and Marietta, mm -hmm. which has caused some concern at the city level. Uh, it, it's so I can imagine down the road that there's going to be some tensions with Lost Mountain in particular, 
over over issues potentially such as annexation in the future because mm-hmm. they kind of took territory away from Mar- the cities of Marietta Kennesaw because mm-hmm. those cities you know over time want to annex more land into the city and now with Lost Mountains creation they can't professor if all of these are approved by voters and they all become cities and I I read I think it was one of the, the Cobb County Commission said they're looking at millions not like one or two like 30 to 40 million dollars going out the door because of these these four cities here how how much truth is in that statement yeah i mean the problem is that the feasibility requirements are only for the new city there's no feasibility assessment for uh the whole county as a whole and i think there should be and um you know it's it's a potential issue because there may be the need for a tax increase for mm-hmm. unincorporated Cobb County. And, and so we think of these cityhood movements as isolated events in one part of the county, but it, it really does affect the whole county. Mm-hmm. But yet the whole county doesn't have any say in the actual cityhood movement do you think, process. Do you outcome. think that should change? Do you think the entire county should vote as opposed to just the designated region or how does that work yeah i mean you know i i'm not necessarily advocating that although that's what you know the compromise that was reached in los angeles was that you know we'll have a vote but you have to you have to prove to the whole city of los angeles that this is a good idea (laughs) that everybody's going to come out a winner yeah and so you know it would be an interesting campaign (laughs) you know i i uh you know, leg- the legislature is not going to, uh, you know, require that. <laughs> but if, um, if but you, I, I go, ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead and finish. Um, you know, I I think up front, one of the things that that needs to happen is more local input. Um, like if you look at North Carolina and you look at Texas, when the cityhood movements start, the first one of the first things you have to do is collect a petition from registered voters. In fact, in North Carolina, the advocates for cityhood have to collect a petition equivalent to 15 percent of the registered voters in the area. And there's no such requirement in Georgia. Mm-hmm. You could you could have a group of people with money, which is often what you see. They can go get a feasibility study. Mm-hmm done and then take it immediately to the state legislature Mm -hmm. and not and get very little local input at all (laughs) you know so i would i would like to see there be more local input before this goes up to the state legislative level the voice you hear is kennesaw state university political science professor david shock and we're talking about the cityhood movement trend movement now professor depending on depending on whom you ask, and some will argue that there is a correlation between race, segregation, cityhood movements, folks being want to be elite. You've heard all of that. This is not new to you. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. Um, these, the academic studies, you know, it's hard to get at race because when you interview people, nobody's going to admit that True. they want to live in a, a, racially homogenous community. The studies indicate that the motivation often is more around social class. Mm-hmm. And of course that's correlated to race. Yeah, yeah. I'll let you finish. But yeah, but it's um it's kind of upper middle class areas that want to kind of secede from the rest of the county and kind of do their own things and control land use and growth. What do you hear? Have you talked to folks? You've been following this in Cobb County. What are you hearing from people about their concerns if these four new regions become cities? Yeah, I I think that for people who live outside of these cities, there hasn't necessarily been a lot of attention by ordinary citizens to the movements and, and its overall impacts on Cobb County governance. Uh, you know, because it, it it may very well result in a tax increase, mm-hmm. but it's hard to gauge that at this point um, because the feasibility studies, when you look at them, you know, they, they make assumptions about revenues and expenditures. And 
you know, we're in a time right now where we have inflation and, but we also have a strong job market and interest rates are going up. So things can, oh, a year from now, things may look very different. Well, and what's the impact on the schools the, for, for kids attending the public schools in these, in these regions? Would there have to be some realignment of, you know, where you can now go to school in high school? And, and you know, you, we, in Georgia, we talk about sports, you know, that's a big, that's a big issue particularly in the high school level. Yeah. Uh, For the most part, the schools aren't affected. The, um, the school district is separate from the, from the cities in in Cobb County. Marietta is is an independent school system, Mm -hmm. but the other parts of the County use the Cobb County school system. So what you would likely see is every, you know, the Cobb County, you know, school systems in Georgia are large, they're Mm -hmm. county based generally. And so you have to do redistricting at times, you know, where you have to move attendance zones for schools that have grown too big. And so you would likely see these cities try to intervene in those types of decision making, because you wouldn't, you know, you move into a place to go to a certain high school, you have your kids go to a certain high school, and then the school board wants to change the lines, which they right. don't do a lot. <laughs> but I would imagine that the, the cities would probably try to intervene to the extent they could in those types of decisions. Well, but some folks part, may you, want an exemption. Well, my kid was, you know, can he go to this school? Can she go to that school? I mean, you, you know how all this work plays out. It would not be a surprise. Yeah. 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 It's, uh, yeah. I, um, I don't think the schools actually, uh, play a big role in this. Oh, you say it now, professor. Yeah. (laughs) People are generally satisfied. That's the thing with Cobb County. That's different than other areas in Metro Atlanta is people have historically been very satisfied with the, the services in Cobb, including the school. What people have you been talking to? Because some of the folks I talked to would not agree to that particularly yeah. <laughs> these last two years with the pandemic, Professor? Yeah, I, I'm talking kind of the last 40 years, you know, the, the history, whereas you had this this large pent-up demand in Sandy Springs for cityhood. And, and, and really, North Fulton, you know, wants to secede from the rest of Fulton County. <laughs> yes, I know. There hasn't really been that type of push until very recently <sighs> in Cobb County. Everybody and was... I would argue the, the COVID situation's unique. And I think you've seen that frustration with education throughout the country. Well, as someone on Twitter said, not excited to be in East Cobb City and pay for a whole new government structure. That's fair. Yeah. Uh, East Cobb was uh, the, the, the proposals in Cobb County are what they were termed city light by uh, members of the media um, because the Cobb proposals were a bit different than earlier proposals in Metro Atlanta because the only services being sought, being uh, done by these proposed cities was uh, zoning and planning, which is the most important one, uh, code enforcement and parks and rec or sometimes sanitation. And so those services are not particularly costly Mm -hmm. to do. Although earlier this year, there was a proposal in East Cop, they actually expanded the services to include police and fire, which is a lot more expensive. So, so uh, East Cobb, um, which which you would see is a shift in revenues that go from Cobb County to East Cobb. The argument that the East Cobb advocates make is that there's not going to be a net increase. You'll see a decrease in Cobb, and then an increase maybe in the in the. How do we know that? City. That's I bet can folks. Listen, and you start out, we talked about these feasibility studies, but folks can give their opinion and say, well, this won't happen or this will happen. But we honestly, Professor, we don't know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Uh, The feasibility studies do, us, you know, they have assumptions associated with them about projected revenues and also expenses. It's a whole different it's a whole different ballgame when you've got to pay for your own services and other things like that, just because some folks want to, you know. Carver way. I'm just saying. And if you yeah. check Twitter, folks are, they got some concerns about what you're talking about. So just letting you know that. Uh, if you yeah. were a betting man, will all the, will voters approve all these cities in Cobb County? Yeah. Um, you know, the problem is that 
it's hard to assess public opinion. I would have <laughs> really? thought, you know, it, you know, because it, we're talking about low, we can't really do scientific opinion polling in small areas, you know, like uh, vining. So it's, it's kind of hard to assess the people who show up at public meetings aren't necessarily representative of the, of the public <laughs> at large. They're just showing and, up at meetings just to voice the, well, I mean, professor, you're killing me. You kill. I, I would say that at least three of the four will pass. <laughs> I wouldn't go out on the limb saying all four will pass. I know there's significant opposition in East Cobb, but it's hard to gauge sure. the level of opposition. I'm going to have you on this program in- after the primary, after that vote in May. And I'm going to yeah. play back everything that you just said today and have you defend or, you know, Maybe you're right. Yeah. Uh, the one I, um, I'm least certain about is probably Mableton. Yeah. I think that one, if there's one that would go down to defeat, it's probably Mableton. Of course, now you're going to get all those emails from the people in Mableton. Kennesaw State University political science professor David Schock. Good information. Good conversation. We've been talking about the rise in cityhood efforts, particularly in Cobb County. Professor Schock, thank you so much for taking the time. You are booked to come back that next day. So mark it off oh, on, your, you. on, your, on your calendar, all right? Yeah, thank you for having me. All right, now. We are so much having a public radio moment these last couple of minutes. You're tuned to Closer Look from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Misinformation, fake news, or quite simply, lies, It's not so easy for all to determine what's real news and what comes from a credible news source, and especially for the young consumers of information. No, I can't believe it. I have to share this. Wow, so many likes. What have you shared? Look at this. It's so cool. I'll share it as well. Groundbreaking, eating one kilo of chocolate a day boosts your memory? Where did you see that? A friend from school has shared it with me. Not sure where she has seen it. Did you double-check this information before sharing it? What do you mean? On the internet and social media, there are lots of news stories that are not real, and they are called fake news. Sometimes they are posted just to make people laugh, other times to get more likes or harm someone or something. Come on. At the end of the day, it's just a post on social media. Look at all these likes. But it's a lie. It's only chocolate we're talking about. But next time it could be you. Think about it. (laughs) Well, if only it was that easy. What you just heard was from an animation courtesy of the educational platform Smile and Learn. That's titled, What is Fake News? Tips for Spotting Them, Fake News for Kids. And of course, that's targeting K through 8th grade. Well, let's talk about the big kids. Next fall semester at the University of Georgia, UGA students of any major can enroll to get a news literacy certificate. What's that you say? Well, it will. it's a program that will help students identify misinformation as well as understand First Amendment rights and the role of the free press. I'm joined by Joined now by Charlotte Norsworthy, instructor of journalism at UGA and a newsroom advisor for the Red and Black. That's the UGA's independent student newspaper. And Charlotte is also the program coordinator for the News Literacy Certificate. Also, Keith Herndon, professor of journalism at UGA. I know so many people that have been taught by this man. I've been waiting to talk to him. He's also executive director of the Cox Institute for Journalism. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you this, uh, Professor Herndon, where do you get your news and information from? Oh, my gosh. I am a news junkie, Rose, so I get my news from every place. Uh, uh, Charlotte knows that I'm an NPR fan, so I'll get that out of the way first. Thank and you. Then, thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> public radio, public media. Uh, so I'll get that out of the way first. Uh, uh, but, yeah, I read everything, um, uh, you know, national media, local media. Uh, the AJC, the Atlanta Business Chronicle, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, my wife is from Dallas, so I check out the Dallas Morning News. You know, every everything that I can get my hands on. All right, Charlotte, um, what about you? 
Yeah, I'll have to also throw out a plug to public radio and audio storytelling. That is my jam as well. Uh, of course, I got to shout out local news, the red and black, um, uh, Atlanta Journal, Constitution, Banner Herald out here in Athens as well. Um, and yeah, I similarly like to engage with a wide variety of news, um, but others like my uh, uh, generation, I would say, I, I do consume a lot of news uh, on social media first. I will say that that's where I get a bulk of my uh, information. And so um, social media does introduce me to a lot of different perspectives. And I love the fact that you said that is my jam. So yes, this is going to be a great conversation. But listen, earlier there was a report, and there have been many before, that trust in news media is declining. Charlotte, let me stay with you. No surprise. No, I don't think it is a surprise. I think we've seen over the last handful of years that trust in institutions generally is on a vast decline. So that's news media as one example, but um, our local state and national government, um, our churches and other institutions, uh, folks are beginning to question the way that they function and why do they function that way. Uh, news is just is just one piece of the pie, but we have really seen uh, a large hit to the credibility and trustworthiness of news with the rapid uh, spread of mis and disinformation starting back in you know, the early uh, 2010s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really not a surprise that this is still a challenge that we see today. Professor, what about you? That's not a surprise, I know, to you as well. No, no, I, I think that the, the, the issue that we have is that credibility in news is not the same across the globe. And when you look at the data specifically for the United States, when you look at surveys that are done most recently by the Reuters Institute, uh, we see that the United States is at the very bottom Mm -hmm. of around 50 plus uh, countries that they surveyed in terms of people who trust most of the news most of the time. And uh, I think that is a serious issue when you are um, uh, a country with a First Amendment and a free press, but yet we're at the bottom Mm -hmm. of the uh, list in terms of credibility of news. Charlotte mentioned how so many folks will get their news through social media. Can we attribute this decline then, Professor, to the many ways we all obtain our news? Now, I grew up where, you know, we got the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, we got the St. Louis Argus, which was the paper for uh, the black St. Louis. And then also, you know, when we wanted to watch the news, it was five, six, and 10. You, If you wanted to know what was happening, you had to watch the news. Now, news is 24 hours, you've got 24-hour networks, streaming platforms, what have you. Is this decline also because folks just have so many different options? And is that problematic sure. or is that good? Well, I, I think it's a it's a two-edged sword. I mean, clearly we are the most, um, uh, we have access to the most information society's ever had access to. At the same time, we have uh, the most um, probably access to uh, untruths and, and disinformation that we've had access to. And, and uh, uh, to, to Charlotte's point, yes, uh, younger generations and even people in my generation, I, I certainly get news off of social media. I'm, I'm no different than, than that. But, uh, but I think the issue is that in social media, we've had such a dilution of brand strength. Mm-hmm. It, it's very hard to differentiate when you're looking, say, at a Twitter feed, the difference between something from the New York Times and, and something from something that's made up to look like the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is just contributing to it. It's so much easier to uh, to create a hoax or create a conspiracy theory and get it out on social media in a way that it looks like legitimate media. And by the time someone has discovered that, wait, this is not true, it's already gone viral. Charlotte, there was this from the Pew Research based, based on a survey they conducted, nearly a quarter of Americans get news from podcasts and especially younger adults we're looking at 18 to 29 years of age is that because with the pot for podcasts they can get it when they on demand when they want it or it's just that's that generation's preference because they're so tied to this little thing i'm holding which is my cell phone yeah i think i think younger and younger generations are the generation of multitaskers and so one thing about the medium of audio in general especially podcasting where you can pause play and rewind uh, and listen to it on your own time uh, students young adults early career professionals really enjoy that flexibility but i do think that there is a push um, to have a little bit of slower radio if you will where uh, we want longer form storytelling in an audio format and so we are seeing podcasts that range in popularity and in 
length from anywhere from 10 minutes that are quick hit news uh, to get you started on your day to longer form over hour long podcasts to explain uh, international trade crises, for example. And so I think that increasingly people, um, as they're glued to their phone, but also glued to their home speakers, uh, multitasking uh, and getting their news at the same time is probably going to be one of the ways of the future. And the reason I wanted to start our conversation off starting starting with those questions, because I think it lends itself to why you all are doing what you're doing. And Charlotte, you're the program coordinator for the News Literacy Certificate. Either one of you can take this. How did all this come about? And obviously, you all felt a need to have it. Well, I'll, I'll start by the providing some history, and then I'll let uh, Charlotte weigh in on, on the classes and stuff that we're going to be offering as part of this. Um, I am uh, an old uh, uh, newspaper hack. Uh, I go back to my days as a reporter and an editor at the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. And um, over the, the, the 35, 40 year arc of, of my career and the last 10 being in the classroom, you just see this continuing uh, deterioration in trust in news. And you see this continuing deterioration in respect of the news media, mm-hmm. right? And um, uh, I think a lot of that, um, can be mitigated to a certain extent with education and explaining to people uh, in a better way, in a systematic way, how the news media works, how is it supposed to work, what is the ideal of a free press, mm-hmm. and then where does that free press fall short of that ideal? You know, certainly we're not going to be teaching the certificate with any kind of Pollyannish, you know, rose-colored glasses. We understand that the news media has its warts, and we're going to talk about those. But we start from an ideal and then go from there. Hmm. And uh, and that's where this kind of came from. I mean, just a, a career in watching our industry being um, uh, torn down in some ways. And, and we want to start uh, at the student level with our journalism majors, of course, and then students that are not journalism majors building that back up in, in some way. Wow. Charlotte, how unique is this? Yeah, I think uh, we were having a conversation anecdotally about this. We we really aren't seeing this at all happening at other universities. And so not to toot our own horn, but we may uh, just might be the first uh, university to initiate some sort of certificate that's university wide and and truly accessible to the entire student body, regardless of major field of study, um, full-time, part-time, graduate level, uh, what have you. And so I think that this is highly unique, but I don't think it will be for long, which is the goal, right? We want uh, more and more universities, K through 12, uh, and just society writ large to really take this and prioritize news literacy because uh, a big reason why we want news literacy to be so accessible is because it's something that impacts everyone, regardless of career and regardless of of um, the type of media that you engage with. Everyone is online these days. And so we all have a part to play uh, in making sure that we are spreading information that we know is accurate. And the fact that this certificate is open to all majors, uh, so someone studying economics or marketing, if there's a listener that says, well, will they really gain something from understanding all this? What would your answer be, Professor? Well, you know, the the, the inspiration for this came from uh, a course that we teach uh, that's going to be the intro course for the certificate as well. And the course is called Media News and Consumers. And that course started out as specifically a journalism class, but it did not have any prerequisites. And so what we started to see is students from across the university taking that class as an elective. Hmm. And um, this semester, for example, I'm up to 221 students in that class as an elective. And we have students from sport management and sociology and history and education and uh, various business degrees um, in that in that class. And um, and so we saw that there was an appetite out there uh, for these, you know, many disciplines to learn more about how the news media works. And, uh, and, and you know, it's in the process of getting a certificate approved. You have to go through a lot of curriculum processes. Mm-hmm. And so we surveyed that student body, that group of people uh, multiple times uh, leading up to this and found that there was a, an across-discipline, um, multi-discipline uh, interest in learning more about how the news media works and particularly 
how to combat misinformation. When we started this conversation, I asked you both about research to reveal people just have a distrust in media. And I want to be very fair about this because we saw this highlighted. Former President Donald Trump would frequently spar, if not attack, journalists. I want to play a clip. This is from a White House press conference back in 2018 when Trump was asked by CNN Washington correspondent Jim Acosta about Trump spreading misinformation regarding migrants and then a potential investigation regarding Russia. I'll tell you what, CNN should be ashamed of itself having you working for them. You are a rude, terrible person. You shouldn't be working for CNN. Go ahead. I I think that's unfair. You're a very rude person. The way you treat Sarah Huckabee is horrible. And the way you treat other people are horrible. You shouldn't treat people that way. Go ahead. In, in, go in ahead, Jim, Peter. Go in, ahead. in Jim's defense, I've traveled with him and watched him. He's a diligent reporter who busts. Well, I'm not a big fan of us. yours either. So I you understand. Know, to be honest, so let, me, so let me ask you a question, if I can. You repeatedly you said you aren't. You aren't the best, Mr. President. You repeatedly, over the course okay, of okay, just sit down, please. Well, when you when you report fake news, no, when you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy of the people. Go ahead, Mr. President. Over the professor, and in Charlotte, I want you to chime in as well. I had talked to so many fellow journalists during the Trump administration. I'm not picking on that administration. I'm just keeping it real. Who were just did not want, some said, I'm ready to leave our industry because this type of behavior, telling people that the press, and then look, I'm not going to sit here and say that all journalists are great people. What I'm saying is that when you have the president of the United States calling the news media, the enemy of the people. Professor Herndon? Well, I, I reacted the exact opposite way. Mm-hmm. I was like, uh, I don't want to leave this field. I want to be, I want to double down and and improve, uh, you know, our, our citizenry's understanding of the role of the free press and why uh, calling it the enemy of the people is, I mean, we have to just understand that that's political speech. It's it's a protected uh, free speech, but it's it's partisan speech, and it's aimed at appealing to a certain part of of his base. And uh, if we are teaching journalists, we have to teach them to separate that kind of rhetoric from what is actually the news. And um, uh, when you know that happened, I mean, I went into the classroom the next day and said, "Anybody here feel like we're enemy combatants today?" Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, we are not the enemy of the people, and we're not, and, and we don't, and we don't approach it that way. We approach it that we are part of a profession, and we consider our college to be a professional school, and um, and uh, that's that's the approach we take. That's so, a great yeah, approach. I mean, I heard those, I heard that rhetoric, but we used it to double down and say, you know, this is why we're here. Well, my good friend and mentor Hank Klibanoff said on this program, "Hey, it's just getting good. Don't leave now." But Charlotte, you know, the professor talked about, you know, you can use that as as a a teaching point for young journalists. But for the other majors, you know, how do you get them to understand this is just political speech and speak and this is not to be taken that journalists are enemy of the entire nation? How do you how do you get that across? Yeah, I think it's important, especially for those who aren't engaging in journalism or the production of it daily, uh, to explain to them the role that journalism has in our country. I mean, Dr. Herndon said it well at the beginning of this interview that we have a protected free press, but we do not have a guarantee that one exists. And so how do we ensure that 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 community and this practice is Uh, one that is invested in and understood and supported by society as a defender, as a watchdog, um, as one that is serving more than anyone U.S. citizens. Um, And so that means everyone, regardless of what your major or your field of study is or or the specific work that you uh, find yourself doing, uh, journalists, we, you and I, are are here to serve you. Um, And this is how we do that. And this is how we will continue to do that. Um, increasing a level of understanding of transparency on journalists' parts, um, I think will help re-engage um, American society and remind them that uh, when they hear comments about being the enemy of the people or being fake news or being untrustworthy, that uh, citizens have power too uh, to ensure that what they are engaging with is trustworthy, is credible news. Professor mentioned there were hundreds of folks signing up with this news literacy certificate. Are y'all going to be able to get everybody through? I don't want to get an email. Rose, 
they didn't they closed the class, they closed the curriculum they closed the course because they couldn't get to me i mean are you all prepared for this uh, yes uh we uh we have the capacity uh these courses there there are four classes and i'll explain briefly um uh, we start with an intro class called media news and consumers and then uh, the students uh, will take a class in uh, news credibility and what it means you know how what is what is credibility in the news the kind of the external look uh, then they take a class in ethics and diversity which is an internal look at how we view our responsibilities and then uh, we end that with a uh, capstone class in uh, media savvy um, so the so the idea there is to teach uh, uh, you know, the, the, the overarching concepts and then bring it home into some real world exercises. And uh, these classes are all part of our existing curriculum and they're not new, uh, they're tried and true and we have world-class faculty teaching them. And uh, we believe that we'll attract uh, uh, students from across the university. And, and we want those numbers uh, into, the, into the hundreds and the hundreds if we can, uh, we can convince people that this is worth their uh, worth time in their degree program. And you have some wonderful instructors in your journalism program. If you need a substitute, I'm available. <laughs> well, uh, hh hey, well, uh, we may, we may do this what the new certificate in news literacy, the podcast. There, oh, there. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Charlotte, I want to give you the last word here because you also work with the students and you're the newsroom advisor for the red and black. How are you all? How you, you're all an independent student newspaper. So how have you all been doing these last couple of years, especially with COVID as well? Yeah, COVID definitely did a number on us as well as um, uh, all sorts of independent media. Um, but I think our independence is one of our strongest suits. And I think that um, uh, people realized uh, over the last couple of years that quite especially investing in independent local media um, is the news that services them first and we service their backyard. Um, and so while we have had to be very flexible and hybrid in our models and how we deliver the news, it has, uh, if anything, increased our longevity as an organization to continue to support um, our, our industry's next generation of uh, truth tellers and watchdogs. Um, and regardless of the format, we will make sure to continue uh, prioritizing that and preserving that medium. We've had so many interns become staff members from the Red and Black, and we appreciate that. And definitely from your program, Charlotte Norsworthy, instructor of journalism at UGA, also a newsroom advisor for the Red and Black. And also we, I spoke with Keith Herndon, professor of journalism at UGA and executive director of the Cox Institute for Journal- Journalism. Thank you both for taking the time. Good conversation as always. I love to talk this stuff. I really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you, you for having us. Y'all take care. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Daniel Razel, LaShawn Hudson, and Janine Etter. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Fresh Air's next. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.